Good morning, brothers and sisters. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we ask for a fresh revelation of your son Jesus this morning. And that through the face of your son Jesus Christ, we might have a fresh revelation of you, Father. Transform and renew our minds this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit working through your word. Amen. Well, as we just heard in the children's sermon, one of the most helpful windows into the identity of Christ comes in these Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king. All right, we were listening. All right. So question number 50 of the Anglican Catechism explains the connection in this way. It says, Christos is the Greek term for the Hebrew title Messiah, meaning anointed one. Old Testament kings, priests, and prophets were all anointed with oil. And Jesus Christ was anointed by the Holy Spirit to perfectly fulfill these roles. And he rules now as prophet, priest, and king over the church and all creation. In other words, Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of everything that these roles imperfectly stood for. We actually get a bit of all three roles in embryonic form in the figure of Moses, but in Jesus, they come to full flower. Amen? Jesus is the new and better prophet like Moses. He's the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, as John taught us last week, uh, who always lives to make intercession for his people. And he's the long-awaited king, the son of David, whose throne would be established forever by God himself. J.R.R. Tolkien also seemed to have this threefold vision in mind in The Lord of the Rings, where Tolkien, uh, himself a devout Christian, divides Christ between three characters. So there's not just one Christ figure in The Lord of the Rings, there's really three. Uh, so in Tolkien's imagination, Aragorn is, of course, the long-awaited king, right? Yeah, of course. Uh, Frodo, as the ring bearer, is portrayed as a kind of priest or, or also like a sacrificial lamb who carries the sins and weaknesses of all. And who's the prophet in The Lord of the Rings? Who would you say? Gandalf. Right, Gandalf, right? The wizard, uh, the miracle worker who gives sage advice to the other characters. Um, and just in case we're too slow to notice the messianic undertones, Tolkien really drills at home by that whole Gandalf raising from the dead thing. You know, after defeating a devil-like creature and rejoining the battle on a shining white horse. I mean, come on, guys. Are you paying attention? All right. So in Tolkien's work, uh, the prophet like Gandalf is probably the most obvious Christ figure. But I would say in the Bible, it's the opposite. In the Bible, there are lots of passages about Jesus as king or Jesus as priest, but we probably get the least information about Jesus fulfilling this prophetic office. True, Jesus's ministry and miracles are reminiscent of Old Testament prophets like Elijah and Elisha, so there's that. Then, of course, there's these end times uh, prophecies in the Gospels that Jesus gives, and they remind us of a prophet like Daniel or Ezekiel. But the clearest connection is, of course, with the figure of Moses. And in Deuteronomy 18, we get this glorious promise of a prophet like Moses who is to come. Will you please turn there with me, grab a pew Bible, and turn to Deuteronomy 18. It's on page 161 of your pew Bible. 
And the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy presents the final teachings of Moses as the Israelites are sort of perched on the banks of the Jordan River just before they go into the promised land. So, but before God's people learn about the new prophet, uh, the one they must inevitably follow, Moses begins by warning them who not to follow. The Lord calls them first to set their backs and then to set their faces. They're to set their backs to the ways of the nations and to set their face to the prophet like Moses. Now, this principle reminds me of uh, something my daughter Nora said um, back when she was like four or five years old. We were driving through the city of Pittsburgh. It was during our seminary years, and we came to a red light at this intersection. Now, none of us except Nora noticed uh, this at the time, but on the crosswalk, um, just right next to the car, there happened to be this really strange man standing there in a big black cloak with a hood hanging over his head and black contact lenses on. And he was sitting there looking at all the cars ominously. And, uh, and I would, like I said, nobody saw him but Nora. And then all of a sudden from the back seat, we hear, we hear Nora go, uh, <laughs> she says, I don't trust in that guy. <laughs> and uh, she didn't just say, I don't trust that guy. She says, I don't trust in that guy. Right? And we were like, uh, Nora, I think that's wise. The light turned green. We had to go. I don't think it's a good idea to trust in that guy. I don't know what he's doing. Um, so even back then, Nora understood that sometimes in order to set our face, we first have to set our backs to other voices. It's not always that obvious, though, is it? Now, looking down with me at our reading from Deuteronomy 18, uh, verse 9 begins, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn. Turn to your neighbor and say, you shall not learn. You shall not learn how to follow the abominable practices of those nations. You see, whenever we make a decision for truth, we implicitly make a decision against things that are not true. Amen? So to affirm such and such is right is also to imply that this and that is wrong. To stand for the one true God is to denounce the many false gods. And as the saying goes, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. As modern Christians, we care so much about being nice. Not good, mind you, just nice. And of course, affirming. Now it's natural to prefer to love people through agreement rather than through disagreement, of course. But it's not always possible, is it? Sometimes just to stand there smiling and nodding is actually the unloving and cowardly thing to do. We live in a cynical age, an age of moral ambiguity. But brothers and sisters, not everything is gray. Some matters are black and white. Consider the stark language that Holy Scripture uses here to refer to the practices of the pagan nations. Verse 9 designates these practices as abominable, which is a Hebrew word used to describe something that's not just wrong, but morally disgusting. Verse 12 repeats God's disgust twice more. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And furthermore, he says, because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So it's important to note, as we look ahead to the conquest of the land in Joshua, that the destruction of the Canaanites 
was not an attack upon innocent people, guys. It was an expression of God's judgment upon them for generation after generation of abominable practices. These pagans might not have had the law of Moses, but they had the natural law and they had God-given conscience. And so according to the Lord, they should have known better. And there's no double standard for Israel either. Later on in the Old Testament, when the Israelites begin doing some of these same things, what happens? The land vomits them out. And what are these practices that cause such moral disgust in the sight of the Lord? Well, I want you to notice that ranked number one among them, and you'll see this pattern throughout the Old Testament, is the practice of child sacrifice. Verse 10 says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Now, child sacrifice was quite common to the Canaanites. It was a way of currying favor with the gods for the sake of guidance or prosperity or a better harvest. In other words, people would sacrifice their innocent children in exchange for their future prospects. And I want to linger for a few minutes on this moral issue. Because before we start judging these pagan nations with disgust, we need to ask ourselves as Americans... Do we not do the same thing today? Just in a different way. Do we not still put innocent children to death in their mother's wombs? Do we not still, most of us, do this for the sake of their parents' career and future prospects? We do indeed, and on a much larger scale than the Canaanites ever did. In fact, over 63 million Innocent children have been killed in the womb since Roe v. Wade in 1973. 63 million. Now, to put that in perspective, if you took all of the American casualties in all the wars that we've ever fought, it would be around 1.1 to 1.2 million. Now, that, that's, that number's terrible in its own right, but it's still 55 times less than the amount of innocent lives we've electively sacrificed on the altar of adult autonomy and called it health care. Think about it. Statistically speaking, an American life, regardless of ethnicity or socioeconomic status, is actually less safe by far in their own mother's womb than they are in our military. But for Christians, beloved, this should never be so. And we should never make peace with it. From the beginning, from the days of the New Testament and the earliest church fathers, followers of Jesus have always resisted the practice of abortion and infanticide. It was actually quite common in the Roman Empire. And Christians would rescue discarded babies off the trash heaps and raise them as their own. This moral conviction is only bolstered by modern science and genetics since we now know as an indisputable fact that human life, which is to say a living human being with a distinctive genetic structure and identity, comes into existence at the moment of conception. But today, more than ever, Christians are pressured to keep silent on this controversial topic. Indeed, our own president, who claims to be Catholic, has time and again publicly advocated for the right to terminate a pregnancy at any time for any reason. He claims to be against abortion personally, but he consistently advocates for it publicly. 
Now, over the years, Pastor John and I have rarely called out a specific political figure by name. Once or twice, we felt moved to do so with President Trump, which ruffled a few feathers. But, guys, the Bible is a two-sided sword. It's an equal opportunity offender. And I feel moved to express my deep moral revulsion over our president's leadership on this key moral issue. Recently, in a viral YouTube video, Catholic theologian and Bishop Robert Barron respectfully called out President Biden for his moral inconsistency. May I say, begins Barron, I'm mightily tired of the way that the president and his allies use the term impose. Time and again, they say some version of, I'm unwilling to impose my beliefs upon others. Barron goes, goes on to point out, it's utterly incoherent to claim that one can hold the position private, privately and not defend it publicly. That would be precisely analogous, listen up, to someone in the 19th century saying that though he personally finds slavery abhorrent, he'll do nothing to eliminate it or even to stop its spread. It would be precisely analogous to someone in the mid-20th century saying that though his personal conviction is that Jim Crow laws are morally repugnant, he will fight publicly to keep them in place. Do we not see this? Brothers and sisters, Barron's point is that protecting the lives of the unborn is not some merely Catholic or religious matter like forcing someone to go to Mass on Sundays or imposing a national fast during Ramadan, which would, of course, be wrong. Rather, it's a matter of basic human justice, of protecting the weak and the vulnerable, which is a topic we must seek to address through just laws. Now, looking back at Deuteronomy 18, we see that God himself does not hesitate to issue such laws when it comes to child sacrifice. The Israelites are to set their backs to this abominable practice. Furthermore, the Lord holds the Canaanites morally responsible for killing their children who were made in his image, and his judgment is not swayed by the fact that, you know, they have a difference of religious opinion. But there's more. In addition to child sacrifice, the passage also denounces various forms of soothsaying, magic, and fortune-telling. The modern equivalent, as Sarah mentioned, would be things like reading uh, tarot cards or uh, Ouija boards or poem reading. Verse 14 says, For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune-tellers and to diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. You guys know the Lord has not allowed us to do these things, I hope. Around the time we started Incarnation, I had the opportunity to share the gospel with a practitioner of various forms of New Age spirituality. And after a few meetings, she really began to believe. She began to study scripture and to recognize the voice of Christ. But the problem was, there were all these other voices in her head that she had long since invited into her life. So I asked her, was there anything present in her life that she needed to renounce? And she mentioned this deck of tarot cards that she was particularly proud of because they were really expensive and the artwork was really beautiful. Now, um, she at first thought, um, I, need, I need to get rid of these. Maybe I'll sell them. You know, and I said, no, 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 no. You don't, we don't push our pollution downstream, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, so then she decided, well, then I need to burn them. And now I was all for that. And I still remember standing beside the fire pit in my house as she renounced these abominable practices. And those beautiful pictures, she set them ablaze. Virtually, 
all religions have practices associated with divining the future, a way to seize control of the present by gaining knowledge of what's to come. In contrast, the primary role of the prophets of Israel was not foretelling, that was a part of it, but not foretelling, but forthtelling, calling God's people to realign themselves to his way, to God's way. Of course, one way of telling a true prophet from a false was that the predictions of the false prophets didn't come true. Right? Verse 22 says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that's a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. Now, that was the criteria for the foretelling part of the prophetic office. But then there's an even more foundational criteria for a true, true, true prophet. Flip back with me, if you would, a page or two to... Um, Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13 and verse 1 begins, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. So in this example, the prediction actually comes true, notice. But keep listening. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen. Turn to your neighbor and say, you shall not listen to the words that the prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So false prophecy in Israel was primarily a matter of pointing people away from Yahweh and only secondary a matter of things not coming to pass. And as this relates to our own times, I got to say, I think politicians are the false prophets of today. Promising what they do not deliver and pronouncing doomsday scenarios that never come to pass. Not only that, but our contemporary obsession with politics has become a kind of cult. Replacing true religion, tempting countless people, even Christians, to spend more time watching Fox News or CNN than they do reading their Bibles or serving their neighbors. And since there's less and less identity nowadays that comes through us through our family or through our faith, people are more and more so asking politicians questions like, who am I? And where are we going? And what is our preferred future? I tell you, brothers and sisters, politics have their rightful place, but our identity and hope comes from setting our face to the prophet like Moses, not from politicians or the many commentators. In verse 15, we arrive at this more positive side of Deuteronomy 18. Flip back ahead to that if you would. Now Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. So the prophet will be like Moses, and contrary to um, common Muslim interpretation of this passage, will again be a Jewish man, i.e. from your brothers. And Moses concludes in verse 15 with the sharp exhortation, it is to him you shall listen. And this exhortation is repeated again in verse 19, this time from the mouth of God himself. The Lord says, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, God will judge us based on our obedience to this mysterious prophet who is to come. 
Now, there are some who have interpreted this passage not as referring to a specific figure, but as establishing the office or the institution of prophet in Israel. And while it may be connected with the institution in general, it's worth noting that all of the Hebrew pronouns occur in the masculine singular. In other words, they appear on the surface to be pointing forward to something more, to the promise of a new Moses. Indeed, that's how they were interpreted by the majority of the Jews in Jesus' day. In the first century, there was actually a lively expectation based in part upon this passage that Israel's true salvation, their true exodus, was still to come through this mysterious figure. For example, we see this expectation on display in John 6 after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. If you remember, John 6, 14 says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. So there's a direct reference to Deuteronomy 18, but why do the Jewish crowds make this biblical connection at this time? Well, you may remember that Moses also fed the Israelites miraculous bread in the wilderness in the form of manna. And so not surprisingly, there was something about being fed this bread that made the people associate Jesus with a prophet that was to be like Moses. But is there a more direct reference to Jesus as being the prophet like Moses of Deuteronomy 18? I'm glad you asked. Yes, there is. Will you flip ahead with me to the New Testament, to the books, to the book of Acts, chapter 3? It's easy to remember. It's on page 911. And... Here, Peter is preaching Christ to the crowds after healing a lame beggar. And he says in verse 22, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him. Turn to your neighbor and say, listen to him. In whatever he tells you. And he adds this about Jesus in verse 23. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So here it is crystal clear. And there's a similar reference in Acts chapter 7 at the martyrdom of Stephen. But my favorite reference to Jesus as the prophet like Moses comes at the transfiguration narrative in the Gospels. Now, will you turn with me to Luke's account in Luke 9, page 867. In verse 29, says that Jesus was praying on the mountain and the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. But whereas Moses' face on Sinai was radiant from without, right? He was like the moon that was reflecting the glory of the Lord. At the transfiguration, Christ shines from within. As the creed puts it, God from God, light from light. Because the Son of God is himself the light of the world. And the cool thing here is that Moses is actually present, talking to Jesus along with the prophet Elijah in verse 30. Verse 31 says, they appeared in glory and spoke of Jesus' departure. Now this word departure in Greek literally means his exodus. You can probably see it. There's a little text note there. That he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now the point is, Whereas Moses had led an exodus out of slavery in Egypt, the cross of Christ would be an exodus from slavery to sin. 
the true and lasting exodus that Israel had been waiting for, one that brings definitive liberation. Finally, we come to the Father's voice speaking out of the cloud in verse 35, which declares, this is my son, my chosen one, and then for good measure, for clarity, he adds, listen to him. Turn to your neighbor one last time and say, listen to him. Glory, glory to the great prophet Jesus Christ who was to come and indeed who has come. Not only was he recognized as such by the crowds after the feeding of the 5,000, not only was he preached as such by the apostle Peter and the first martyr, martyr Stephen, but here he's definitively declared to be so by God the Father himself to be the prophet, the new and greater Moses, and we must listen to him. Here it is, brothers and sisters. Here in the face of Jesus Christ, we find the source of our identity and the guidance to our vocation. We must listen to him. We must listen to Jesus. And what are the kinds of things that the prophet Jesus says to us? What's the vision that this great prophet sets forth? Well, he says, set your backs to all the vitriol and the infighting and the hatred and the public discourse and set your face toward loving your enemies. He says, set your backs to cancel culture and set your face to forgiving others as you have been forgiven. He says, set your backs to the culture of lust and the exploitation of women and set your face to purity of heart. Set your backs to serving mammon, the love of money, and set your face to the love of God. This is the message of the prophet Jesus and we must listen to him. Let me summarize as we begin to draw to a close. The book of Deuteronomy contains a unique promise that's different from all the other messianic hopes expressed in the Old Testament. The promise in this instance is not for a future king, a new David as it were, but rather a new Moses, a prophet like Moses who would teach with God's authority. Remember when Jesus taught the crowds would say, they were amazed. Because he taught as one who had authority, not as their scribes. He didn't need to quote others. He had self-authenticating spiritual authority to say what he had said. And his words needed to be heeded. But Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As Hebrews 3 puts it. Just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. The last sentence of the book of Deuteronomy, indeed the last statement of the Torah says, and there has not risen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. But whereas Moses knew God face to face, he never saw God face to face. If you remember, he was only allowed to see God's back. For no mere man could behold the face of God and live. That's the unique contribution of the God-man, Jesus Christ. The prologue of the Gospel of John, verses 17 and 18, puts it this way. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And I close with this reflection on Jesus as the prophet like Moses, written by Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, he says, only the one who is God sees God, Jesus. 
He truly speaks from his vision of the Father, from unceasing dialogue with the Father, a dialogue that is his life. If Moses only showed us and could only show us God's back, Jesus, by contrast, is the word that comes from God, from a living vision of him, from unity with him. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning, we must set our backs to the ways of the world and set our face to the Lord Jesus Christ, the prophet like Moses, and even more, the Son of God. Let us listen to him. Amen.